Sassy Specula. Sassy Specula. Sassy Specula. You're listening to the Sassy Speculum. Hello, Sassy Speculum fans, and welcome back to the women's health podcast that inspires you to know more about what is actually going on in your body so that you can better advocate for your health with an ounce of sass and often, if I'm being honest, idiocy added in for your entertainment. If you're new here, welcome to the Sassy Speculum community. I'm your host, Adrian. I started this podcast a little over a year ago as my community education project requirement for my last year of medical school. And after I fulfilled my requirements and tried to quit, I got yelled at and encouraged to keep this up, which I'm honestly glad that I did because I truly, truly do enjoy writing and producing the Sassy Speculum. And I love learning along with you all about whatever it is that I am talking about that week. And thus, Sassy Speculum has now continued for over a year with a few hiatuses because, unfortunately, school and board's exam prep took priority for a little bit. But we are back stronger than ever for season two, which starts today. For those of you who do follow me on social media, and for those of you who don't, do it. Go follow me at Saucy Speculum. But for those of you who do and saw me post after less than a week of studying for boards that I decided to take a break from podcasting, but in lieu of that, I was going to post something fun and new that I learned every day while studying for boards so that y'all could continue learning along with me. And then I only did that twice in the span of like four or five weeks. Yeah, I apologize. I thought that it was going to keep me accountable on social media and even encourage me to look for the silver lining fun thing on those days that were super terrible with studying for boards, but I had no idea what the following five weeks were going to look like, and I absolutely did not even have the brain power after a day of studying to cook dinner or take care of myself, so making Instagram and TikTok posts were just not feasible. The people who saw me during those weeks can tell you that I was a total asshole, grumpy, mopey, very weepy, and just not fun to be around. So while, yes, I do apologize for being a bit of a flake and not falling through on literally any promises that I've made this summer, um, I spared all of you from dealing with me. So you're welcome. But quite a bit has happened in the past two months since my last episode. Um, Most notably, I graduated from med school in late June, so I guess I should have started this episode with, I'm your host, Dr. Adrian, or Dr. Noor, but I'm not used to that, and it sounds so pretentious to me right now because I've been wanting to be Dr. Adrian slash Dr. Noor for the past 19 years, and it's finally true, and it just feels weird. (laughs) So bear with me, please. Um, I also took my boards, obviously, if I haven't made that clear already. Um, Those were the first entire week of August, a week of five different tests spread out over five separate days, Um, because here in Oregon, a bunch of extra tests are required in order to get licensed as a naturopath versus other states. So in addition to our three days of core clinical science board exams, we also have to take quote-unquote elective exams, which are absolutely not elective, but they like to make us think that we have a choice in the matter. So on top of the main clinical exam that tests our knowledge of pathology, physical medicine, diagnosis, pharmacology, botanicals, homeopathy, nutrition, exercise, psychology, emergency, labs, imaging, etc., 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 etc. We also have to take tests on organ laws, minor surgery, and an extra pharmacology test because apparently the farm that's on core is, it's just not enough, I guess, for organ. I don't know. And then um, a handful of us were given incorrect information and told that we also needed to pass an IV medicine test for licensure, even though we already took an IV licensure test in our third year of school. Um, So a bunch of us signed up for that test, too, and had the lovely pleasure of having to do multiple long division equations in a 75-question, 90-minute exam, which was truly the most fun I've had in about a billion years. Um, And the best part is, is that now I have to wait six weeks before we find out if I passed or not. Meanwhile, I'm not allowed to work. Anyways, I'm done talking about that miserable week. Um, I don't think anything else super big happened during that time since I've talked to you all last. So let's get moving on this episode. As I mentioned, if you are not following me on social media, you can give me a follow on Instagram, TikTok, or that new Twitter knockoff threads, I think, um, at Saucy Speculum. 
feel free to DM me on there, or you can also send me an anonymous message through my website, sassyspeculum.com, if you would prefer to be anonymous. You can scroll down on the main page, and there's a form that you can fill out with any podcast questions, comments, suggestions, topic ideas, or just to say hi. Um, I love hearing from all of you, so please reach out if you have anything to say. This episode, as I said, marks the beginning of season two, which means some changes are coming to the podcast and hopefully to my social media skills. I have a couple guests lined up who I cannot wait to share with you all, but I learned my lesson last season about introducing guests too early and then they bail and then I not only left y'all high and dry, but then I'm at a loss for how to quickly fill those spots that I promised. So, until I have solid recorded episodes with new guests, I will not be giving any hints, so just hold your horses, but keep an eye out on the socials for updates on who might be coming on board. Um, I think that's enough of me blabbing about future stuff for now. Let's just jump right into this episode. So this episode I've been planning since before my self-imposed shutdown. Um, It was on the connection between estrogen and the thyroid because I think this connection is crazy interesting. Um, It's a great example of how everything in the body is interconnected and explains how the body works as a whole. However, upon starting my research, I thought that this might be a bit of a huge jump um, to start the new season with. So while I will today be talking a bit about the connections of estrogen and the thyroid, it is not going to be the main topic. Instead, I'm going to be discussing estrogen dominance in general, which definitely does play a part in thyroid health, but estrogen dominance is something that is very, very misunderstood by the traditional medical community, and even sometimes by well-versed naturopaths as well. As always, Nothing that I say today or any day is medical advice. I am a doctor, technically, um, but I am not your doctor, so I don't know anything about you or your health, so please discuss any changes to your health with your doctor before making any changes. If you'd like me to be your doctor, that is also totally possible. My wait list is available on my website, sassyspeculum.com, if you're interested, and more info on that later, too. Anyways, Please, please, please understand that the purpose of this podcast is to educate you so that you have the knowledge to advocate for yourself and your health with your medical team. I am not here to diagnose or treat you without actually a two-way conversation. That's not how diagnosis works. Um, With that said, let's jump in with some symptoms first of estrogen dominance so that you can better understand if this is something that maybe does affect you. I will obviously deep dive on symptoms later on in the episode, but real quick, Some of the main symptoms of estrogen dominance are headaches, especially around your period, itchy or restless legs, heavy or painful periods, bloating, anxiety and or irritability, difficulty losing weight, trouble sleeping, hot flashes, allergies, varicose veins, cellulite, breast lumps, or other issues like endometriosis, adenomyosis, frequent miscarriages, fibroids, and infertility. That list is not at all exhaustive. It was huge, but not exhaustive. Um, It does cover a wide range of signs and symptoms that one could experience with estrogen dominance. If you fit the bill, keep listening. And if you don't, keep listening anyways, because it's interesting. The term estrogen dominance was coined by Mr. Robert E. Lee himself, the Confederate General of the American Civil War. He was also a specialist in women's hormones. No, I'm totally, totally kidding. Um, It was coined by Dr. John R. Lee, similar to Robert Ely. Um, In his first book, um, he was a doctor and he wrote a lot about progesterone and women's health. He was a pioneering doctor in the use of natural progesterone creams, as well as in finding ways to balance sex hormones to better women's experiences throughout the hormonal changes in life. As many of you know, estrogen is a hormone and just like many other hormones, it has widespread effects on the entire body. Um, It does not work in a vacuum. It's not just happening in the uterus and the ovaries. If you would like a more in-depth understanding about estrogen and the other big hormones in your body, go back and listen to episode eight, which is a huge deep dive on the biggest hormones in your body. Um, It is an intense episode. It's a lot, um, but it's really informative and it's really, um, I tried to put it all into patient-centered language so that it's very understandable. So that's episode eight. I will link it in the show notes from today. And that's just a really big deep dive on our main hormones within our body. To put it very bluntly, 
Estrogens are a group of hormones that play an important role in our normal sexual and reproductive development as women. There are multiple different versions of estrogen, if you will. Um, estrone, estradiol, estriol, etc. Those are some of our main ones. Um, some of the versions of estrogen are considered bad, dirty, and or unhealthy, and they lead to an increased risk of disease, among other things. The liver works to change the nasty estrogens into the good, clean, and usable estrogens. For the most part, estrogens are predominantly made by the ovaries, although they are also made by your adrenal glands, which are these little hats that sit on top of your kidneys, also by your fat cells, and by a part of your brain as well, which is a recent um, discovery. But the connection with the fat cells, this is why weight gain is often a symptom of estrogen dominance, and weight loss is often a first-line treatment mentioned by doctors. In addition to being a sex hormone that regulates our reproductive tracts and menstrual cycles, estrogen affects the urinary tract, our heart and blood vessels, bones, breasts, skin, hair, metabolism, mucous membranes like your gums, mouth, um, inside of your vagina, as well as your muscles, and it even affects our brain. Just because estrogen is well known for its role in the uterus does not mean that that is all it does. It is actually a huge hormone for metabolic health and is important in both men and women. A study from 2013 looked at estrogen's role in metabolic health specifically, and it found that there are specific estrogen receptors that control our food intake and energy expenditures, fat cell distribution, insulin sensitivity, which is another hormone to learn more about from episode 8. There are even estrogen receptors attached to our immune cells. In today's world, these are the actions of estrogen. However, when evaluated in our non-homo sapien ancestors, they found that estrogen actually did not play a role in sexual reproductive capabilities, but it was more involved strictly in the roles of energy metabolism and survival. I'm going to talk a bit about estrogen depletion for a minute. I know that's a topic for another time and day, but I think it's helpful to better understand the metabolic effects estrogen has on our bodies which will help us to better understand the symptoms and causes of estrogen dominance when we get there. As women, we reach the perimenopausal, menopausal, and postmenopausal periods of life, our circulating estrogen levels decline. Many women see an increase in belly fat with this change. That's because the estrogen fat receptors love belly fat. Why that fat in particular, you might ask? This tissue just has a higher concentration of estrogen and progesterone receptors than other fatty tissue. They have found in monkeys that a removal of the ovaries, which obviously would remove the main producing organ of estrogen, causes a sharp decline in estrogen, which then causes increased belly fat deposition, which was prevented by estrogen replacement therapies. And I've seen this happen outside of the lab as well in animals. One of my lifelong and best friends got her kitten fixed a few years ago, which for female cats this involves the complete removal of the ovaries. Shortly after she was fixed, she became giant. And I don't mean just like fat cat giant. Like when she lays down, she looks like someone sat on a meatloaf and squished it. Huge, huge fat gain just from the removal of ovaries. The removal of ovaries actually also was found to increase random food intake in rodents, which partially accounts for the increased weight gain, of course, but the rodents also exhibited reduced spontaneous physical activity without their ovaries. This combination of increased appetite and decreased desire for movement indicates that estrogen isn't solely helping our reproductive tract. It is clearly involved in our brain and our nervous system, specifically a part of the brain called the hypothalamus. This area of the brain, among many other things, controls our food intake, energy expenditure, and body weight homeostasis. Estrogen and progesterone, for that matter, both have an effect on the hypothalamus. However, the response to these effects is very different between males and females. In the study mentioned before, um, once the ovaries were removed, researchers found that the hypothalamus actually was able to take over generating estrogen, and they then stimulated the hypothalamus to release its estrogen, which proved that it was not only making its own estrogen, but estrogen was also acting as much more than a hormone. It was acting as a neurotransmitter, which is very interesting. Neurotransmitters are the chemicals that our nerve cells use to communicate with each other. I went on like way too deep of a dive into the research on this, and it's incredibly interesting, but I also feel like 
very much less important than the bulk message that I'm trying to get across here. So instead of continuing to delve into this research, I'm going to continue on with our estrogen dominance topic. Um, we now know the widespread effects of estrogen and that it's so much more than just a sex hormone. I want to discuss how estrogen dominance happens. Obviously, with age, our estrogen depletes. This is the cause of menopause. But why the heck would a hormone that affects pretty much every aspect of our organism just go haywire and dominate over the other hormones? Or does it dominate over the other hormones? But like always, I'm getting ahead of myself. One question at a time, Adrian. Um, why does estrogen dominance happen? Well, like everything in medicine, there are multiple different reasons why. Some reasons are internal, meaning the way that your body is functioning is not quite in line. Other factors can be due to things happening outside your body that are then causing hormone balances inside. First things first, let's talk about the internal reasons. Number one, your liver is a slug. As humans, we pound on our liver. We eat shitty food, we drink alcohol, we take too many medications and over-the-counter things like Advil and Benadryl and Tums. We use chemicals on our skin and hair and even in our mouth, and our liver has to process every single thing that we put into and on our bodies. And our liver is also what processes estrogens, and it's what conjugates the bad or dirty estrogens into the beneficial and usable versions. An overburdened liver is usually the main cause of estrogen dominance. When our livers are worked too hard, they get tired, just like you do when you're worked too hard. And then it stops changing the dirty estrogens into clean ones, and it just pumps out dirty estrogen. This can explain why estrogen dominance gets worse with age, because our livers are effing tired from the decades of shit that you've shoved at it. And this explains why it was a little bit easier to pound shots of bottom shelf vodka in your early 20s, but not so much in your 30s or 40s. Your liver is pooped. But... Estrogen dominance and liver overload can actually really start at any age. It really depends on your toxic burden. The good news is that there are lots of things that can be done to reduce this toxic burden and to help your poor little liver to do its job better. Another internal reason is that you aren't eating enough fiber. The U.S. Food and Nutrition Board of the Institute of Medicine, wow, say that five times fast, recommends that women under 50 intake 25 grams of fiber a day, and for those over 50, they eat 21 grams of fiber per day. As Americans, we typically only eat about 15 grams a day, and that's a pretty big discrepancy, but what does fiber have to do with estrogens? There are two different types of fiber, insoluble and soluble. Soluble fiber turns into a jelly-like substance by mixing with water in your intestines. It regulates digestion, and it actually helps to prevent the reabsorption of estrogen back into our bloodstream, therefore reducing an estrogen dominance tendency. Insoluble fiber, it doesn't dissolve in water, but actually it's one of the only things that is able to stay intact within your GI system, and it acts more like a broom, sweeping through your colon to push out the dirty estrogens and, once again, preventing further estrogen reabsorption back into the bloodstream. Insoluble fiber is also the one that helps you to poop regularly, which is how we eliminate all of the nasty estrogens. I bet you didn't know that your poop had hormone metabolites in it. It's more than just the food that you push down your throat. Without a regular bowel movement, those nasty estrogens are just hanging out in your colon, which allows them to be very easily reabsorbed and shunted back to your liver for it to have to detoxify them again, therefore doubling its work, which doesn't really seem fair, does it? Both soluble and insoluble fibers are incredibly important to ingest in order to reduce the causes of estrogen dominance. Soluble fibers include apples, pears, asparagus, leeks, oats, mushrooms, and flax seeds, and insoluble fibers are mostly found in plant-based foods, like flax seeds, again, uh, cruciferous veggies, oat bran, um, the outside whole of oat grains, beans, and sweet potatoes. A third and very, very important internal factor of estrogen dominance is poor gut microflora. As a naturopath, this is often a starting place for me in getting someone's hormones balanced. This is absolutely core for true healing, which I know I've talked a lot about, but it's still so overlooked. A healthy gut needs to have a wide variety of bacterial bugs in order to support the immune system, brain, and blood. 
Without a wide variety of bugs in there, you cannot regulate your hormones like serotonin and dopamine, which then causes mental health deterioration. You also can't absorb your nutrients well or produce certain vitamins needed for everyday health, once again decreasing your immune system. In episode 5, it's called Bad Belly Buggies, I talk about the importance of a healthy gut microflora and most importantly for this topic are estrobilome. The estrobilome is a specific type of microflora that is strictly in charge of metabolizing all of our estrogens. Isn't that cool? We have specific bugs within our intestines whose sole job is to work on estrogen. If your microflora is out of whack, then there aren't enough resources for the estrobilome to do its job and break down those dirty estrogens. And the dirty estrogens then come right back into the bloodstream, leading to estrogen dominance. Combining this cause of estrogen dominance and the fiber cause, the fiber feed the beneficial estrobilome bacteria, which line the small intestine, creating a mucosal barrier to the bloodstream. If these bacteria are hungry and they're not being fed correctly, that mucosal barrier breaks down, opening the door and allowing in molecules that shouldn't be in our bloodstream. This leads to chronic inflammation because your body is like, WTF, why is there a chunk of corn running through my blood right now? GTFO. Just kidding. You don't actually get like a chunk of corn in your bloodstream or food in your bloodstream. That would literally kill you instantly. But you do get food metabolites in the blood that are meant to stay in the intestines. And this causes the inflammatory freakout and chronic inflammation. And we all know chronic inflammation leads to further disruption in gut microflora, further production of estrogen metabolites, and reduced ability for your body to just function right. Are you kind of seeing how everything is connected now? Too much sugar is another dietary cause of estrogen dominance. Sugar is directly linked to inflammation, both of which are associated with pretty much every chronic disease ever. And it's also a major cause of estrogen dominance. Diets high in sugar increase your blood sugar and the hormone insulin. This paves the path for insulin resistance, which is directly associated with estrogen dominance. Insulin resistance is when the cells that are present in our muscle, fat, and liver become less responsive to insulin, and therefore they can't easily take up glucose from your blood. And glucose is the main source of energy currency for our cells. This leads to all sorts of problems that we don't need to discuss now. Maybe another day I can do a diabetes overhaul. But for today, let's stick with one chronic problem at a time. Ingestion of too much sugar leads to a cortisol spike. Cortisol, another hormone, promotes inflammation and also reduces progesterone. Progesterone is estrogen's counterpart. They like to stay together, and this hormone is what keeps estrogen in balance. When progesterone goes down, estrogen goes up. In essence, sugar is accurately labeled the white death because it completely shoots all of your hormones in the foot, causing them to go haywire. And on another note, sugar increases belly fat specifically, which as I discussed before, is a direct association with estrogen. Too much belly fat is plain and simple reason for estrogen dominance and is related to the other causes of estrogen dominance as well. Fat, especially belly fat, produces estrogen because it has estrogen receptors literally built into it. If you have too much belly fat, you have too much estrogen, and the more that you're contributing to that estrogen dominance. I am a strong believer in health at every size. I believe that everybody can be healthy at the weight that they feel best at. And I am in no way, shape, or form telling you that a skinny, fatless belly is the only way to be healthy. Not at all. Belly fat does have an evolutionary purpose to protect our vital organs, and it is needed for hormone health in general, and it is there for a reason. The point that I'm trying to get across is that belly fat should be appreciated for its vital roles, And it should also be recognized as a source of issue when it comes to needing to decrease the amount of circulating estrogen in our bodies when needed. Moving on to some less gastrointestinal internal reasons for estrogen dominance, stress and trauma. That's a huge one. When you're stressed, you produce a ton of cortisol in order for your body to help you handle that stress. If you're in a state of chronic stress, like many Americans are, Your body converts the progesterone precursor, pregnenolone, to cortisol instead of progesterone. This pregnenolone thievery 
means that more and more cortisol is being produced and less and less progesterone is produced, which is needed to balance out that estrogen production, therefore leading to estrogen dominance. Another reason has to do with a completely other organ in general, our gallbladder. This is a little bag-like organ that helps the liver to excrete hormones and helps our gastrointestinal system to digest fats. The gallbladder is one of the most frequently removed organs as it is often seen as problematic and dispensable. If your gallbladder is removed or has been under-functioning in producing bile, you can't excrete estrogen as efficiently as you once did or even metabolize estrogens, once again leading to a buildup of estrogen. And finally, the last internal reason that I'll talk about today is genetic predisposition. Unfortunately, sometimes our genes are just written in a certain way that they get turned on or off by environmental factors. But the thing is, just because you have a genetic predisposition to something does not mean that you will have to develop that something. There's an analogy of a genetic predisposition to something being like a loaded gun. You have to pull the trigger for anything to happen. It's not just going to fire by itself. Even if many of the women in your family have a history of breast cancer, this does not destine you to develop breast cancer. Something has to pull that trigger, whether it's a trauma, a stressor, any of the things that I've talked about for the past, I don't know, 10 minutes, your diet, toxin exposure, or whatever. There has to be an assault to the body for that trigger to be pulled and to develop whatever it is that your genes have predisposed you to. Moving on to the external factors of estrogen dominance, let's start with the hot topic item of the year. If you're on TikTok or follow any women's health news sites, I guess, you have most definitely seen the war on birth control and specifically oral birth control pills. I am among the generation of women who were put on the pill at a young age in order to make my periods survivable. As many of you know, if you've been listening, um, I have endometriosis, and before intervention, my periods were a shit show, literally and figuratively. Um, and in the 2000s through the, I don't know, 20 teens, doctors just threw birth control at women and girls for all period problems because that made the most logical sense to them. I'll tell you now that birth control, especially the pill, is nowhere near the best option for controlling period problems. However, I will give a little plug for IUDs and reducing the amount and size of endometriosis growths. They do that, and localized exogenous hormones are a fabulous option for that aspect. But no birth control is going to actually fix your period problems or your symptoms. The IUD does not reverse endometriosis or get rid of your pain. It just makes it so that the lesions don't continue getting bigger or spreading. But like always, I'm getting off topic. Oral birth controls are made up of synthetic estrogen and progesterone that disrupt the production of your own hormones. They prevent ovulation and therefore prevent pregnancy. They are efficacious because they keep estrogen really, really high and progesterone low so that you cannot have a baby. Obviously, if you're keeping estrogen really high and progesterone low, you're increasing your likelihood of an estrogen dominance. On top of the fact that you are literally creating piles of estrogen in the body, your system doesn't recognize the synthetic hormone and therefore doesn't know how to break it down. So the pill is monumentally making estrogen dominance and therefore the symptoms of estrogen overload so much worse. The pill only covers up your symptoms of painful, irregular, heavy, or PMSy periods. I hate to get preachy about this, but having a normal cycle is natural. And guess what? Having any of those symptoms associated with periods, including having cramps, means that your period is abnormal and your body is trying to tell you something about its hormone balancing dance. Another thing, the bleed that you get with birth control pills is a withdrawal bleed. It's not a real period. It is your body saying, hey, we're not getting any of this estrogen and progesterone anymore for this one week that you're taking the placebo pills. Let's push out everything that's in the uterus right now. It's a withdrawal bleed. It's not a real period because you did not ovulate. Anyways, okay. Other external things that cause estrogen dominance other than birth control are things like xenoestrogens and phytoestrogens. Pretty much everything on our store shelves that has an odor either yummy smelling or foul smelling, has the ability to disrupt your hormonal system. From delicious lotions 
laundry detergent, perfumes, and scented garbage bags, to Windex, spray paint, and bleach. All of these disrupt our endocrine systems. Even putting on makeup, drinking hot coffee through a Starbucks paper cup, and taking a receipt from a cashier can have detrimental effects on your health. All of these man-made products have chemicals in them that mimic estrogen, just like birth control pills. The main problems with these products are as follows. While they mimic estrogen, they actually block the estrogen receptors on cells, which then prevents the cells from being able to work properly. They also cause legit DNA damage to the estrogen receptors, which is linked to multiple types of cancer. And lastly, just like birth control, because they are a synthetic estrogen, our body isn't able to recognize how to metabolize and excrete them. So they increase the total amount of estrogen within the body, and xenoestrogens specifically are not biodegradable, meaning they just hang out in your fat cells wreaking havoc associated with cancers, obesity, infertility, miscarriages, endometriosis, early onset puberty, and chronic diseases like diabetes, heart disease, on and on. My list could go on. The biggest culprits of xenoestrogens to look for in your makeup, body care products, sunscreen, household cleaning products, etc., etc., are phthalates, parabens, and BPA. Phytoestrogens, on the other hand, are found in highly processed foods like soy-made products and other types of imitation meats as well as conventionally raised meats and dairy. There are both good and bad phytoestrogens, and the bad ones are the ones that mimic estrogen and act in a similar manner to the xenoestrogens. The good phytoestrogens are found in flax seeds, tempeh, fermented soy like soy sauce, edamame, and lots of other unprocessed raw foods. There are many herbs that are phytoestrogenic that are actually used in the treatment of many menstrual issues and estrogen dominance as they are great antioxidants and anti-inflammatory agents and help the body to detoxify that extra estrogen. Unprocessed and quality soy foods have been studied to be protective against hormonal cancers and are actually really great for female health. It's when these things start becoming overly processed that they start causing problems in the body. I think I just spent like 20 minutes talking about all the things that you can do wrong for your body when it comes to estrogen dominance, and that's not really a method that I like to take towards healing. I prefer to focus on the things that you can do right, as that's where true change and taking charge of your health and healing really happen. I also think it's really important to understand why you have a problem so that you can actually fix the problem at the root instead of just slapping a band-aid over it and pretending like you're fine. So let's now talk about the different types of estrogen dominance and how they might appear differently. There are two main types of estrogen dominance and multiple subsections of those types. Estrogen dominance can be differentiated into frank and relative dominance. In frank estrogen dominance, your body just straight up has too much estrogen. When tested, estrogen comes out grossly out of range. This is what I have. Last time I tested my hormones, it was the luteal phase of my period, and at this time during the period, the high-end lab cutoff to be considered quote-unquote normal is 460, bottom range is 130. I was at 758, but all of my other hormones were within normal range. This is frank estrogen dominance. Then, on the other hand, relative estrogen dominance is when you have too much estrogen in relation to progesterone. This is when your estrogen is winning over the production of progesterone, and it's either popping up as low or low normal on lab tests. In this case, estrogen can also either be normal or low normal, or even low. It's all about its ratio to progesterone. Both versions of estrogen dominance have the same symptoms, and with those same symptoms, you're going to feel shitty either way. In both cases, you don't have enough progesterone to balance out that estrogen, like with me, I have hella high estrogen, but my progesterone is normal. That doesn't mean that I won't feel any symptoms because I still have the progesterone hanging out. No, estrogen and progesterone have to be within a tight ratio in order for negative symptoms to not crop up. And when one outweighs the other, we get a long ass podcast about it, I guess. <laughs> as I mentioned in the beginning, the hallmark signs of estrogen dominance either frank or relative, are anxiety, mood swings, depression, low libido, dry eyes or skin, weight gain, fatigue, fertility issues, 
headaches, even migraines, insomnia, allergies, poor muscle tone, painful, irregular, and or heavy periods, your puffy face, your bloating, and even a sore throat, specifically before ovulation and or the start of your period. Now, despite the past I don't know, 10 minutes, 10, 15 minutes of me discussing how estrogen affects all aspects of the body and how everything is interconnected. You're probably like, okay, seriously, what does a sore throat have to do with estrogen? That seems crazy because that's exactly what I did when I read that. And here's the lowdown. I said that it can happen before ovulation when estrogen is at its peak and progesterone is low and also before your period starts when both are low. This is because progesterone is an upper airway dilator, meaning it opens up your lungs. When you're sleeping, your tongue and throat muscles relax in varying degrees depending on what phase of sleep you're in. If there's less progesterone hanging around or not enough in comparison to the amount of estrogen, then your tongue is more likely to fall back, obstructing your breathing and leading to a temporary vacuum-like effect in the throat. This vacuum effect actually ends up suctioning up small amounts of stomach acid, causing an irritation in your throat. If you eat something shortly before going to sleep, the stomach acid comes up even more, further worsening your sore throat. In some cases, this excessive throat inflammation can cause significant sleep deprivation, leading to premenstrual headaches, fatigue, irritability, weight gain, and all of the other symptoms that I already talked about crazy how everything really does come like full circle, right? Another weird one is allergies. Why would excessive estrogen cause an increase in allergies? That seems silly. This is because there's an actual direct link between histamine and estrogen. Histamine is a hormone released from one type of our white blood cells called mast cells. They act as a healthy part of our immune system when introduced to an allergen. And Interestingly enough, the breakdown of histamine corresponds to levels of our reproductive hormones like estrogen, progesterone, luteinizing hormone, and follicle-stimulating hormone. There is a feedback loop specifically between estrogen and histamine. Histamine has an additive effect on estrogen, therefore increasing the levels of estrogen in the body when it's present. And when estrogens are high, mast cells are then stimulated by the brain to release more histamine, And high estrogen also downregulates the enzyme that clears histamine at the same time. So there's a vicious cycle between histamine and estrogen, which just causes more drama. On top of that, progesterone is a main stabilizer of mast cells, and it upregulates the enzyme that clears histamine. So it should be the one decreasing histamine symptoms, but once again, estrogen takes one for the win. Histamine can be the cause of menstrual headaches and cramps, fluctuations and allergies and asthma dependent on your period, hot flashes, brain fog, congestion, depression and anxiety, especially before your period, bloating, recurrent mid-cycle symptoms, insomnia, and actually even worsening interstitial cystitis. So if you're picking up on what I'm putting down, Many of the symptoms attributed to estrogen dominance are also symptoms of histamine and mast cell activation, and they found direct correlations between histamine and both endometriosis and premenstrual dysphoric disorder. Now that we know the wide-ranging effects of estrogen and how it has its grubby little fingers in everything, let's talk thyroid. If you remember from the hormone episode, episode 8, the thyroid is our body's gas pedal. It controls our metabolism, conversion of fat into energy, internal temperature, our ability to think clearly, and so much more. Thyroid disorders are so much more common in women than men, especially hypothyroidism, which is seven times more common in women than men, especially between the ages of puberty and menopause. The most common thyroid problem, hypothyroidism, is where the thyroid is under-functioning and you get symptoms like fatigue, weight gain, dry skin, headaches, brain fog, depression, menstrual problems, bloating, etc., etc., etc. Are you seeing a pattern yet? One of the main ways estrogen dominance affects the thyroid is by stopping the conversion of thyroid hormone from the inactive version, T3, into the active version, T4 leading to a very low active T3. This is not a direct issue with the thyroid gland itself, 
but one will experience hypothyroid symptoms. Unfortunately, the main lab test that doctors run to assess thyroid function is called a TSH, thyroid stimulating hormone. TSH becomes either T3 or T4 based on brain signals. But if someone were to have thyroid issues due to an estrogen dominance, TSH could appear normal because there is not a problem with stimulating the thyroid to do its job. The problem is what happens after the thyroid is stimulated. The hormones aren't converted appropriately because of that extra estrogen. Excess estrogen blocks the uptake of thyroid hormones also, further pushing a hypothyroid picture. In case that wasn't enough, excessive estrogen causes the liver to produce a protein called thyroid binding globulin, whose job it is to grab thyroid hormone and shunt it out of circulation. Once again, decreasing the amount of available hormone in the body and further pushing a hypothyroid picture. On the flip side, if someone is hypothyroid, their metabolism is slowed way down. Remember, the thyroid is the gas pedal. If you're not pushing the gas pedal, your metabolism isn't being pushed either. If our metabolism in general is slowed, guess what's also slowed down? The metabolism and breakdown of estrogen, leading to, you guessed it, estrogen buildup and therefore dominance. And if you haven't seen the trend of this episode so far, I will repeat what I said a little bit ago. Estrogen has its grubby little fingies and effing everything, and everything has its grubby little toes in estrogen. It's all interconnected, and everything depends on everything. So let's talk about what you can do if you're like, holy shit, this explains my entire life. And obviously, I don't know if estrogen dominance is the source of your problem without assessing you. So as always, please don't take this as medical advice, and please discuss any changes to your health with your doctor, or sign up for my waitlist, and I'll get you on the schedule so that I can best assess if estrogen is the root cause, and together we can make changes to your health. But the first step that you could make would be lab testing, especially if you plan on making changes to your health. Labs can be really, really helpful in seeing those changes over time, and this can be really encouraging when seeing just how far you've come with cold, hard proof. Looking at baseline numbers and then testing again once, you're, once you've completed your changes. Obviously, running a gamut of labs has its pros and cons that you do have to consider. The most important thing to remember, and y'all probably are tired of me saying this, but hormones don't work in isolation. Everything works together, and one piece of the puzzle influences the other pieces of the puzzle. So running just estrogen, for example, wouldn't be super helpful, as that's just one tiny piece of the puzzle. Now, if I had unlimited resources with patients and could order whatever labs I wanted on all of my patients with symptoms of hormone imbalance, this is what I'd order and what I'd be assessing for with each so that you can know what to ask your doctor for. First things first, a complete blood count, or CBC. This is a very basic test that looks at your red and white blood cells as well as your platelets. This can help to assess anemias, nutritional deficiencies, and the health of your blood in general. Second and third, a complete metabolic panel and a hemoglobin A1C. The CMP looks at your health of your liver and kidneys as well as blood sugar levels over the past 24 hours. The hemoglobin A1C looks at blood sugar levels over the past three months. Both of these aspects of looking at blood sugar are very helpful, especially in assessing inflammation levels. Fourth is a lipid panel. Lipids are also a key indicator to inflammatory levels, and chronic inflammation, as we know, is a key cause of chronic disease. These first few lab tests are very basic, and an average MD will probably order these tests once a year at your annual exam. The next ones coming up will be a little bit more associated with a holistic care model, First of which being another measure of inflammation. A C-reactive protein test looks at how much inflammation is spread throughout your entire body. Next, I would want to run an ANA, an anti-nucleic acid test. This is helpful in ruling out autoimmune diseases, which are actually more common than most people think and more commonly diagnosed throughout the ND community due to that assumed rarity. Obviously, I also would want to run a thyroid panel as mentioned above, just running a TSH is not super beneficial by itself. I'd recommend a TSH, T3, T4, serum iodine, and the thyroid autoantibodies, which are positive in an autoimmune thyroid disease, 
of which one, Hashimoto's, has a direct correlation with estrogen dominance. Next, an IgG food intolerance panel is imperative, in my opinion, to healing the gut, decreasing levels of inflammation, and helping to rebalance your system as a whole. And lastly, a hormone panel, obviously. Ideally, hormones are better tested in saliva or urine. This is because saliva testing measures free and unbound bioavailable and active hormones. These are the hormones that are readily available for your organs. Urine measures the unbound hormones, therefore reflecting bioavailable hormones and can measure their metabolites. This can help us to understand the effects that the metabolites are having on the hormones and therefore help us to know better what the hormones are doing within the body. In blood, there's unfortunately no distinction between the bound and unbound hormones. Therefore, it's hard to know actual hormone levels when testing only in the blood. The most amazing and comprehensive test that looks at multiple sex, adrenal, and hypothalamic hormones is called a Dutch test. However, these are very expensive, and your doctor has to be trained in how to interpret them. If you cannot afford an out-of-pocket test like a Dutch test or ZRT labs or Labrix, which are all awesome, your doctor can order hormone lab tests through your insurance. The hormones to get tested are estrogen, obviously, and all of its metabolites and forms, progesterone and its metabolites, LH and FSH, testosterone, cortisol, and DHEA. The female sex hormones do need to be tested at certain times in your menstrual cycle. FSH and LH are best drawn around ovulation, and estrogen and progesterone should be drawn between days 19 and 21 of your cycle. And cortisol should be drawn before 9 a.m. The testosterone and DHEA, really, they can be run at any time. There are more tests, obviously, that I would run, dependent on the person and their symptoms and their presentation, but that list is what I would run for every patient if I could. Hopefully that's helpful in knowing what to ask for with your doctor and figuring out what's causing your symptoms and how to obtain optimal health. As a naturopath, we also believe in healing from the bottom up of the pyramid, starting with our main foundational aspects of health by addressing the root causes. So for any hormone imbalance, the first step is going to be changing your diet. I know that this is much easier said than done. I've done it myself and it's hard. Um, but it is done by recognizing food intolerances and then eliminating them. Some foods you may be eating and they seem good and healthy, but what if you personally get aggravated by them? I see that way more often than not, and removing the obstacles to healing is key. The next step in the pyramid is using herbs to support overall health and healing, detoxification from that liver, and really just clearing out all those estrogens. And as needed, supplements can amplify healing. When all other options have been exhausted and shit's just not getting better in a case like this, medications can be needed. There are, of course, times for meds first, but in a chronic, stable health problem like a hormone imbalance, clearing up the obstacles to health is the first thing to do in order to actually make a beneficial change. So first step, restore that damn gut. I promise that no matter what, making the step will start to improve symptoms. Second, detox that liver. The amount of crap that I've put my liver through, it's just not fair. And I know that many people can attest to that. Estrogen is broken down in the liver and a clean functioning liver is key in getting estrogen out of your body. And the key to a liver cleanse, it's not a juice cleanse or that maple syrup lemon water shit from the 2000s or supplements that say liver cleanse or whatever. A liver detox is done by eating liver supportive foods as well as fiber and taking bitters before every meal to help stimulate digestion and stimulate that liver detoxification. One really great way of helping to clean up the liver is to avoid contaminating foods and body products. This is not a sponsored post by any means, but there is an app called Yuka, Yucca, Y-U-K-A, where you can scan the barcode on body products and foods to see how healthy they are and how much they will add to your liver's burden. I have found this app really helpful when going to the store to buy new makeup specifically, or I've used it when going to buy sunscreen. Um, I've been using the same brands of mascara and bronzer and foundation for so many years, and they were all terrible for me and my poor liver. 
I scanned like a billion different brands with this app and was able to find makeup that wasn't going to be adding to my toxic burden. And I truly recommend doing this. Same with like shampoos and perfumes and body washes, etc. As I said earlier, every single thing that you put in or on your body is processed by the liver. So having some conscious thought when putting things on is important in clearing those liver pathways. And it's okay to do this slowly. I know how expensive it is to buy new products, and I was able to purchase the makeup that I needed at the time, and slowly I'm getting rid of the bad makeups I couldn't afford when I first started um, doing this change. I couldn't afford to exchange all of my products, all of my shampoos, my perfume, my body wash, my soap, everything, and my makeup, and my food. It's impossible for a working girl (laughs) who's in school. Um, So it's okay to do this slowly. It's okay to just do one product at a time. Every little piece helps. Also important is supporting your blood sugar and your mental health. That's very, very necessary. Nothing in the body happens in a vacuum. So healing your whole body and mind together is the best way to go. Remember, each symptom, each organ system, each imbalance that's going on, it's just a piece of the puzzle. And keeping an eye on the puzzle as a whole instead of the individual pieces, that's the path. I know personally an estrogen dominance issue and having endometriosis, PCOS, PMDD, fibroids, fibrocystic breasts or whatever, and all of the related things, it's a really hard journey. And it's not a quick fix or an easy journey. But if you're devoted to healing and you're willing to work hard, I know that you can do it. And if you ever need encouragement, I got you. Anyways, all I got. Thanks for listening this far. Um, I feel like that was a lot of information. Um, Hit me up if you have any questions or ideas to push this topic even further. As always, you can reach me on my socials at Sassy Speculum or anonymously on my website www.sassyspeculum.com. On my website, you can also sign up for my waitlist if you're interested in being a patient of mine once I start practicing in the next two months. It's coming soon. I would absolutely love to be your doctor and help you along your health journey. Um, So head over to my website and sign on up. It's not a commitment by any means, just saying that you want more information about possibly working together. Please rate and review the podcast if you haven't already. This helps to share the podcast with others around the world and obviously boosts its popularity on the stupid algorithms. So thank you for doing so. And as always, here is the vagina rhyme of the episode from my favorite vagina coloring book, my Vag by Marguerite Cutler. Uh, okay, here it is. Tiny and gooey, my vag is a snail, infamous for leaving a mucusy trail. Thank you for sticking around. Bye!